studying. It's not actually a competition. Just because I couldn't be the best at it, I have to at least complete it. I have to at least get a degree. I cannot let my ego of wanting to be the best at something and not being able to be the best just let me forget studies altogether. I think in theory, everything is always easy to operate. But when you get down to business and you get down day to day, I think it's a different beast altogether. Now that I'm a bit older, looking back, I think that yes, schools matter to a certain extent, but it cannot be the standard for everything you do in the rest of your life. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Fandi Sandrajaya. Fandi is the founding partner of Capital Ventures, a Southeast Asia-based pre-seed and seed-focused fund looking to invest in 40 companies in the next three years. They recently raised $12 million for their maiden fund and are looking to do more investments in Southeast Asia. Before Capital Ventures, Fandi was an angel investor and a serial F&B entrepreneur in Indonesia. Hi, Fandi. So nice to speak with you again. I'm excited that this one is going to be on the podcast. Yep. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Very excited to speak with you. Happy New Year again. Yes. Happy New Year. You are my first recording of 2024. <laughs> wow. Yes. Honored to be. And um, well, the first question I ask everybody on the podcast is what was your childhood like? So I know you probably grew up in um, Indonesia, but could you let us like get a little insight? Like if we could like make a short movie about the beginning of your life like what would it look like right uh i actually didn't grow up in indonesia i moved to singapore when i was oh. seven yeah and i grew up with my siblings in particular my brother when i when i moved to singapore my sisters have already gone way older than me so they have actually moved on and to study abroad outside of singapore for the universities and so i grew up with my brother he was sort of my first role model and everything i do I grew up very competitive. I mean, I look up to my brother, but I was also a very competitive kid at the same time. Unfortunately, my brother set up a bar that's a bit too high for me in terms of school. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave up halfway. I realized I couldn't be the best student in the family. So I tried to be the best athlete in the family. My first spot was uh, I played a lot of soccer, but it turns out I was also not very talented at it. So I gave up after... No, I didn't give up. I still like playing soccer, but I sort of moved on to basketball because my brother didn't play that. So I was going to be the best basketball player in the family. Finally, I was the best at something in my family. How old were you when you were finally the best at something? Like 15, 17? Yep, 15. Took me like eight years to be better (laughs) than my brother at something. In the early days, I wasn't even better than him at basketball because he was just so much bigger than me. Finally, I'd outgrown him at 15. He was uh, three years older than me. So that was the first time I beat him at something, which is basketball. Basketball became my first love. Took a backseat. Unfortunately, I had to drop out of school. I actually dropped out of school when I was 16. But luckily for me, my parents did not... Well, 
not my parents. My dad sort of told me, ah, fine. I think you should just stop school and should just start working. I don't think you're very smart. <laughs> and then my luckily, luckily for me, my mom thought, oh, you have to at least have a degree. Because my parents didn't actually graduate with a degree. My siblings and I were first generation college graduates. So to the ending, I become a college graduate. This is a pretty oh. good ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Started dropping out. My mom did not give up on me and found a way for me to. I think this is also due because later on, as I grow up, I realized that I come from a very fortunate background and that my mom was able to afford me the opportunity to obviously go to the States. Um, so it was only way later on that I had that realization. Uh, back then, I just. I wanted to do what my father told me to do. I wanted to drop out. Uh, I was in my own and work and try to play basketball professionally somewhere. I was a bit delusional in the early days of my life. <laughs> so that was the first time in my life. But fortunately in the family, I think my dad, luckily, he loved my mom enough to listen to my mom. And fortunately for me, he listened to my mom. <laughs> So you so ended, ended up, up getting going, a degree, not just for high school, but degree. college too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> thank God. So yeah, there was then I went to the States. In the States, I met my host parents who was instrumental towards everything I do, I guess. And then there was host parents because I live with a local family back then. So that's when I actually started to realize that studying is not actually a competition just because I couldn't be the best at it. I have to at least complete it, right? I have to at least get a degree. I cannot let my ego wanting to be the best at something and not being able to be the best just let me forget studies altogether. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting story. Like, I was not expecting all of that. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So you moved to Singapore from a young age, but when you moved there... Were your sisters there as well, or were they already in university by then? Were they that much older than you? Uh, my first sister is almost is 11 years older than me. So my second sister is nine years. Well, my second sister was there for a year. Uh, oh. But obviously, uh, for the one, I was in Singapore for 10 plus years. So I did not really have a lot of memories for the first year because she was also studying very hard to yeah. finally get into a good university, things like that. Were you like really close to your brother or that's why like you wanted to be competitive or was it like the opposite? You guys weren't that close when you were younger. That's why you wanted to compete. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I was very close to him. But uh, I think when I was a kid, I was a bit of a scary cat. I think that was a, the term in Singapore, scary cat. Like I wasn't the most courageous person and brave person. I actually... When I first moved there, I did not even dare to sleep alone. So I was competitive oh. uh, in the morning. But at night, I was like, bro, can I sleep with you? <laughs> <laughs> so and then obviously, as I mentioned earlier, my brother was my first role model. So we were, we were very close. In terms of career path, did you also follow your brother? Or was it just like to the extent of grades and then sports? Or was it also in terms of like career? Like, oh, I want to follow my brother's footsteps in terms of like what career he's doing or what career he told me was like the right career for me no no back then uh, we did not really talk much about career talk more about schools but my brother have never told me to take any kind of career have never told me to go to any school 
he went to one of the top schools in Singapore. But even though my parents told me, oh, you have to go there, you have to be like your brother, if you can, my brother have always told me that schools does not matter. Well, I guess at that time, it was, I thought it was easy for him to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if the roles were reversed. Not very. <laughs> schools does matter. <laughs> but um, now again, like obviously, now that I'm way older, looking back, I think that yes, yeah, schools matter to a certain extent, but it cannot be the standard for everything you do in the rest of your life. Yeah. So I was curious, you said that um, like initially you planned on dropping out. Did you plan to drop out only because like you weren't performing so well in school or was it more like, oh, I really want to focus 100% on basketball? Well, I think my school sort of kicked me out. (laughs) (laughs) I was such a bad student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I always make jokes with my friends. So my secondary school that I dropped out of is no longer there right now. It has merged with another school in Singapore. So I always make the joke that, oh my God, I was the worst student and probably the worst school in Singapore. That was quite (laughs) painful. (laughs) Not just kidding. But yeah, yeah. I was just kidding. It was a pretty good school. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. But then at the same time, it was like, yeah, looking back, it was a, at the time, it was quite a painful experience in terms of how it shattered my confidence. I thought that I could still get by uh, and everything. I thought uh, it was the end of the world. Again, it's only now years down the road that I look back and I realize school, not everything. And failing in school is uh, actually the best kind of failure in life because you can always bounce back, I feel. And it's different from actually failing in life, right? Yeah. Failing in your work, failing in your, like, there are more serious responsibilities. At least you experience it early in life where it's like just at the school where there are, I guess, less consequences. <laughs> like the only consequence is yeah. like your own life, I guess, or like your grades versus like if you yeah. fail at like a business, right? Like you have employees, you maybe other people's money. Maybe our yep. family is affected. Yep, yep, yep. At least you can learn early. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, that's a positive way of looking at things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes you need the positive way to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So you said that you were sort of kicked out of the school and then you felt kind of bad about it, right? Like you felt like it was the end of the world. So when they kicked you out, were you expecting it? Were you even aware a little bit that like this might happen? Or you completely caught off guard, like, they kicked me out. Like, I didn't even expect this at all. Oh, no, I completely expected. But I guess when I, (laughs) I mean, I would kick myself out too. I was such a bad student. So I wasn't, I wasn't like a naughty student. You were not not a delinquent. I was just, yeah, I wasn't a delinquent, but I was just very, very lazy. But yeah, the thing that I guess make me feel like it's the end of the world was when my mom cried. Because, yeah, that felt like the end of the world. And then that was when I think later on it leads to my other part of the journey, which I went to university and stuff like that. Then I told, I basically apologized to my mom. My mom asked me, oh, like, are you okay? And uh, like mentally, I was like, mom, that's not very nice to ask me if I'm mentally okay. I think I'm still mentally okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but eventually, so well, my brother went to a top school. My sisters were also really quite good in school, I guess. They perform really well, never give my parents any issue. So my mom took me to a psychiatrist, but then I think that was just a way of making myself feel better. Now looking at back, whenever people ask me why I, f- I flunked out of school in the early days, but then it was actually just me being lazy, right? 
So I was curious. So when your mom told you like, oh, don't give up and don't drop out, you should go to school. Did you feel like motivated at the time? Like, oh, I'm going to perform better at school or not yet. Like, was it only when you met your host family where you're like, okay, I'm going to work really hard at the school. School is actually not so bad, etc. I guess it was uh, my mom crying made me realize that, oh, I have to be more serious. But mm. I guess a part of me was like still halfway there. It was only when I met my host family in the U.S. that I felt like, okay, yeah, I have to really just finish this. Uh, okay. So you, when you went to the U.S., was that for maybe your final years of high school or just for university? There was like a college program in the U.S. There was a community college where you could actually complete your high school diploma there. So that was when I got my high school diploma. It was in Washington State, Auburn, just a bit outside Seattle. So I think a lot of Indonesian students, international students go there to like finish their school earlier because you can actually enroll there 16. You can actually complete your high school diploma and still uh, complete your first two years of university credit. So you can actually basically get out of uh, graduate from college with a degree at the age of 20. Uh, that was the only school I think that would accept me because I needed a high school diploma. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I ended up going and there i met my host parents there i met my advisor for the first time i think i become really good at something which was running running yeah yeah i actually tore my acl prior to going to the states and i couldn't play basketball anymore so I another heart crushing moment yep so i from school cannot play basketball at least yeah. on a competitive level I, I wasn't able to but then i found running i ran from, from my school in the states that was when I realized that I could be good at something because at the, I think over the years, even basketball, I did not really win anything. Uh, I was good, but I wasn't a champion in any kind of national level. Like you weren't competing for any university or any school, right? For basketball? I was competing for my high school, but we oh, got crowns okay. every, ah. every season. <laughs> yeah. So basketball and education, same fate in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so at least when you were running in the u.s you were winning for the school right well at least i competed at the state okay, level okay. i got to the state championships at least at a state level yeah 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 so i improved quite a bit two three years there running and then my host parents were obviously very supportive and they were actually so growing up i did not have my parents my mom and dad were always working in indonesia right so i did not really have a I guess a parental figure that was there for me every day till my host parents who treated me like uh, I think their own kid and took me to church every Sunday, things like that, uh, have like family activities. So that was huge for me. That was when I become uh, more motivated as well in school. I'm more motivated in chasing my goals. And yeah, that was my university life. Were they like Indonesian too or were they American? Well, they were American. Did they have other kids or just you? They did have one other host oh. kid and they have their own daughters. Oh. But the daughters have left home to pursue their career. Mm. And the other host kid kept changing. You're the only constant one then. I was the only constant. So I that's my favorite. You're practically their kid because everyone was coming <laughs> and going. You were there for a long time. <laughs> yes, yes. I was there for a long time. How did you find and, the host um, family? Well, like... I'm curious, like, do you find them online? Does the school assign them to you? So the school assigned them. So oh. when I went there, the daughters just left home. Oh. So I was the first kid that they got. And I think I was their last as well. Oh. Because after that, their kids have grandkids and they come over. 
So that was the like found an additional family there, and my host dad is actually a uh, Filipino American. My oh. host mom was American. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, Filipino. So did he try Filipino food too when you were there? Was it like mostly like typical American food? I think a mix of everything. Oh. You know what's a very sweetest memory I have of them was that they actually tried to cook like uh, I don't know if you ever tried like a Hainanese chicken rice. I had that for I lunch on that in Singapore. <laughs> today. Oh, nice. Yeah. So they tried to cook it for you so that you feel more at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's hard to cook, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is hard to cook it well. I never learned how to cook it. I always just learn how to eat it well. So, <laughs> yeah. Very thankful. Very thankful to someone that thoughtful taking care of me. So talking about like your time in the U.S., after you graduated from university, what did you do? Did you stay in the U.S. for like, your first job or did you go back to Indonesia or Singapore? Yeah, I transferred to Boston. And then that was when I actually got my first job after graduating from Boston. I went to Northeastern and then um, did a part-time master's program at night and then worked during the afternoon. I worked mm-hmm. two jobs in the afternoon. Two? Yes, yes. Your first job ever plus a second job. Yeah, my first job ever plus a second job. I work as a real estate agent, my first job. And then I work part-time in a restaurant. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was yeah. your job in the restaurant? I, well, it was definitely not cooking because you said you can't cook. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I was waiting tables basically uh, because uh-huh. I was calculating back then the per hour earnings and what I would get. So I graduated with a degree in psychology. Yeah. I just calculated how much money I will earn if I actually get a proper legitimate psych job. Mm-hmm. And I calculated how much I will earn if I close this amount of deals and how much hours of work I put in in terms of uh, being in the waitering in the restaurant, basically. And then the same time on the side, I started a side hustle, basically an eBay store back then. Like my main motivation back then was to, to just finish my master's degree and save as much money as possible. Because I think when I go back to Indonesia, I think it was after that in a few years, I had foreseen that I wanted to start my own business. Uh-huh. And I did not want to ask for money from my parents to start any kind of business. Yeah. So you had your first job and your second job plus a master's degree in the evening. But what did you do in the morning? Yep. Was that like your regular classes at Northeastern or was this after you graduated? Oh, no. This was after I graduated from Northeastern. Oh, okay. This was a master's, yeah, yeah. I was like, how can you do all of this at the same time for things? So oh, three no, things. No, no, yeah. Plus the eBay things. store. Plus the eBay store. eBay store, two jobs, and the master's degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. What made you even take like a master's degree in the first place? Why not just focus on just working? Oh, I, I wanted to beat my siblings. Oh, okay. So the competitive <laughs> spirit never died. I thought it disappeared when you went to the US. <laughs> no, no. No, no, it never died. Uh, I, I'm still very competitive till today, but I hope healthy competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was why I did my master's. I don't even know what I learned in my master's program, but I have the master's degree. That's what I always tell myself. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, okay. So... Your first job was the real estate job, right? So what yep, made yeah. you decide on being a real estate agent? Like I've watched a bit of like Ryan Serhan's videos. I have a small idea of what it looks like to be a real estate agent. But like why do it part time on top of like another job? 
why not do like full-time real estate agent plus the master's degree? And why be a real estate agent in the first place? I guess uh, because I always calculate in terms of having a fixed income, right? For example, if I work in a, I graduated with psychology, as I mentioned. So if I work in a proper full-time psych job, I know how much income I'll get on an annual basis. But when I work in a real estate agent, there's the excitement of not knowing how much income I'll get. I can get oh, three times yeah. what I would get in a, psych, uh, in a normal full-time psych job, or I can get zero. And I don't know if this is my downfall, uh, if this is my shortfall, but I always like to bet on myself. And most, more often than not, it has not panned out well in my <laughs> life, but I'm still trying to bet on myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you paired like the job that was sort of not fixed, like you don't know how much you're going to make, plus like a job with like a smaller but fixed income. So you don't have to sacrifice as much versus if you pick like a full-time job, right? Meanwhile, you still have a small yep. security blanket, which is the part-time job. Yes. Actually, even the waitering at a restaurant, right? If uh, At the time, the way I think about it is I'm going to get tips. The oh, tips was going to be at least 10-15%. Yeah. And at the same time, the hourly rate, they asked me how much I want for my hourly rate. I always ask for the least hourly rate at the peak hour. Oh. I always want to serve at the peak hour because that's when I'll get the most tip. That's interesting. Where did you think of this strategy? Is it because of the psychology degree or have you always been like this? <laughs> oh, no, I've always been like this. Just because, again, I wanted to save as much money as possible mm -hmm. because I know that when I go back to Indonesia, eventually, yeah. again, I would want to start my own business. So you need to get your capital. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was very important for me to get my capital. <laughs> So how did you decide that you have made enough money? So now it's time to go back home. Or did you go back home before you, you made enough money in your eyes for your initial capital? I don't think I'll ever make enough money. Yeah. So in the US, I think there was this OPT program where you can stay for one and a half years. Yeah. After you obviously graduate from your bachelor's. Oh, so back then they had it OPT. But even if you're like not working a full-time job in the field. The real estate is technically a full-time job. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was how I managed to stay for one and a half, two years. Then eventually I know after that I would have to go back. Mm. So after one yeah. and a half years doing the real estate job, you came back to Indonesia or like Singapore? Uh, Indonesia. Indonesia. I couldn't that land time. a good job in Singapore. <laughs> yeah, I did not even bother trying. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, so for the one year and a half, were you only doing the real estate job and the waiter job? Or did you also have other kinds of jobs? And then how did the eBay store go? <laughs> oh, the eBay store went really well. I was a crazy basketball uh, guy, right? Still, I was a big NBA fan. At the time, Alibaba was just getting out there. I remember I buy stuff from AliExpress, basketball-related stuff, and I resell it on eBay. It was huge gross profit margin. So that's where you made the most amount of money. It's not the real estate job. And it wasn't the tips. It was the eBay yeah, it's store. Not. Can you rank them for us? Like, is it number one eBay store in terms of earnings? Number two, real estate job. Three, waiter job. Were there any other things? I think it was eBay. And then it was waiter. Then real estate. Are I you kidding? My, real estate the real was estate the worst. Was the yeah, worst? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What happened to yeah. your commission? <laughs> not much. After I closed a few deals... I think during the real estate job, I think my boss at the time was trying to target the international students market. 
Yeah. And I could speak a bit of Chinese. So I don't even need to show units. I think typically real estate agents try to show units, right? I was basically on my computer chatting with uh, Chinese or Indian students mainly. So basically international students, but those were the two biggest markets. Yeah. It's the same as startup, right? China yeah. And India. Yeah. The biggest markets. And then I send them pictures. Pictures look really, really nice. And then when they came into the US, they finally moved in. Turns out, like there were rats invested in the apartment. Oh I felt God. so bad after that. I was like, ah, I don't think I want to close to more deals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because then I will just look sketchy, right? Yeah. So, and then I basically apologize to them. And you go to sleep feeling bad about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the story. That was how I I felt bad to them. Uh, eventually helped them. At least one of them who still want to talk to me after that. I still remember one of them. Then I tried to find another place for them. So can you tell me what life was like after coming back to Indonesia? Yeah, life was different. What year was that? That was, I think, end of 2015, 2016. Uh-huh. And that was, uh, when, that was met- when I met Edward. Yeah, oh. Edward, uh, the CEO of Kopi Kenangan. Mm-hmm. Back then, I think he just started a restaurant. He was my neighbor. And as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to have my own business. I thought that it was really cool what he was doing. I don't know if his restaurant was doing well yet at the time, but I just thought it was really cool. So uh, I always I wanted to approach him, but obviously it will be strange if I approach a stranger in an apartment lobby. <laughs> Saying, hey, I like your restaurant. <laughs> Yep, yep. They'll feel like I'm hitting on him, which is not true. <laughs> so, so what happens after that was, turns out, a mutual friend took me to this basketball group, and he was there. Oh, how did you feel when you saw that he was there? <laughs> I was like, oh, this is my chance. <laughs> so that's why in the game, so during the basketball game, uh, I tried to do something so that I can, after that, make a conversation about it. So what did he do? <laughs> I scored on him. So yeah. So yeah. I, I said like nice defense, things like that. And then I tried to make a small talk and then I pretended to not know about his restaurant and then I brought it up. <laughs> How did you bring it up if you didn't want him to know that you knew about it? You're like, oh, what do you do apart from basketball? Oh, <laughs> oh no, I felt awkward. I said, um, so where do you live, bro? <laughs> Then he said that apartment. Then I was like, oh, damn, we are neighbors. So after that, I asked him, very nice, very nice. You know, there's this restaurant around there that's quite nice. We should hang out there. But then he said, that's his. Then I was like, what? No way. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> what would have been funnier yeah. is like if you told him, oh, where do you live? And then he would be like, oh, but I've seen you there looking at me. <laughs> Because I didn't even see him, right? Thankfully, he never saw you looking at him, right? (laughs) Yes. I think my face is quite common. That's why it's not very memorable. (laughs) Just kidding. But yeah, that was how I met him first time. Then I basically said, that's very cool. Uh, Do you think I can uh, learn from you? I didn't say learn from you, but do you think I can take a look at it sometimes? You have to say it in the cool way. (laughs) Yes, I have to. I can look like an unemployed (laughs) <laughs> trying to think of something to do <laughs> but yeah 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 so 
turns out he went to my school as well. Uh, that was obviously other than basketball. We have a few common stuff. Then he was gracious enough to allow me to look at the restaurant and see how everything was set up. And eventually after that, I opened my own F&B stuff and I was able to do other F&B stuff after that. So that was the base of everything. Learning from Edward in the early days, seeing how he do things. And this was before, I guess, Kopi Kenangan was made. So very thankful that he was very open back then. And then eventually later on, of course, it led to me, Angel, investing alongside him and the other Kenangan guys. What was his restaurant selling? Restaurant was selling tea. Like oh, uh, tea. afternoon tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. And then your F&B ventures, what did they sell? Especially the first one. Uh, it was unhealthy juice. Oh, unhealthy unhealthy juices and juice with a lot of sugar or initially it started out as affordable healthy juice. Then uh after that I realized the sales were so bad. I realized nobody in Indonesia, because my stores were in office buildings, I realized Indonesians uh as the market is not as health conscious yet. Oh, at the time nobody wanted healthy juice and wanted to spend on it, right? Yeah, I mean, even till today, right? I think even, especially in office locations, uh, now we look at more health-conscious people that's going, but those are in malls. Those are not in office buildings. Yeah. So my juice locations was in office buildings. That was when I realized, oh, okay, that was when the first time I realized market size matters, product market fit matters. I don't have both, but I already spent my money to start this store. I guess it can't die. So eventually I realize selling unhealthy juice makes more sense unhealthy juice in the sense that yeah as you mentioned just sugar. more syrup sugar, more sugar for the energy yeah, 10%, I, guess. I guess you can pull it that way that's very nice of you Ten <laughs> percent fruit content oh wait 10 percent fruit i thought i was 10 percent sugar <laughs> Yep, that's really bad. But it sold, right? It sold. Yeah, it sold. Uh, so we had expanded to 10 plus locations. With uh, it wasn't big juice. by any means. Yep, unhealthy juice, 10 plus locations. It was was okay, I guess. What was your favorite order of the unhealthy juice? Uh, when you, when I guess when I, yeah, I learned that when you make your own business, you have to truly believe in a product. I did not believe in my product. I did not even want to buy my own product. did not even want to try it because I know how unhealthy it was. Like, this is the worst product ever. Oh my gosh. But how did you figure out that it would sell though? Like, how did you figure out that making it unhealthy will make more people buy it? I guess, like, Indonesians in general like sweet stuff, right? Mm. Uh, we have a sweet tooth. I like sweet stuff myself. But after becoming in the F&B, I consume less sweet stuff because yeah. I realized how much sugar... I would say, quote unquote, bad ingredients are put into it. That was exactly why I stopped trying my own product as well. I kind of loathe my own products, the products that I was putting out there. But hey, it's selling. It was selling. So I kept going. Then when did you decide to like stop it? So I have really strategic locations. Mm -hmm. So I was able to sell my location to another F&B brand. Oh, so the locations, but not the brand and the product. Yeah, yeah. I, I will never sell the brand. I don't think the brand had brand equity. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't believe in it. Yeah. But that was when I realized that even though it's an F&B business, it's very much a property play as well. Uh, mm -hmm. The locations was everything. Being, having access to customers is a lot of things. You said that you did multiple F&B ventures, right? Apart from this one. Yeah. 
which one was your first success that you actually felt like proud of? Like, I guess for this one, you grew it to 10 locations, like a small success in itself. But which venture did you build was the first one that made you feel like, oh, this is successful, at least in a small way. And I'm proud of it. I guess I have never really experienced success in terms of building my own business yet, to be honest with you. After that, I was able to manage a few retail areas, uh, made several food courts. But it wasn't any life-changing money. It was just, I realized how operationally tough it was to manage food courts. That was my second F&B venture. I guess what I will consider success is when I just started investing, right? Uh, invest in other kinds of projects, property projects for my family. And then later on, invest in public equities. Uh, that's when I, I feel I experienced a bit of success. Because I realized that I was a better investor than I was an operator. That actually led me to eventually angel invest. Because of my years operating these small F&B companies that I had and years of being exposed to other kinds of businesses, I guess it makes me become a better investor in that way. Early stage investor. So outside of public equities, when I started angel investing was when I believe I felt any kind of belonging where I felt a small success. So I'm curious, like, how did you start angel investing in the first place? Was it just, as you said, for your parents, like property thing? Or did you start angel investing on your own with your own capital, like not for maybe your parents' company? Like, how did it start? So I started angel investing out of my own money. Mm -hmm. I think in 2020, I think I has been five years since I came back. So saved up quite a bit of money. And then since I sold those locations to that other F&B brands, I was able to have a bit of capital as well, right? And that was when I think Kopi Kalangan was also rising. Mm -hmm. And Edward and James have started to angel invest. And I think the where we were at the peak of the tech cycle back then as well. So I felt the momentum was just there. And also COVID came, right? In 2020. So I felt it was just the right time for me to come back in and start to angel invest because I wanted to be involved in, obviously I read up about tech news, wanted to get involved in the tech ecosystem and also having the background of investing our family funds and different asset classes. At least I thought I'm not going to be very bad at it. Mm. So oh, okay. because in between like making my own F&B stuff and the angel investments, I actually helped my family invest into different asset classes, public mm -hmm. equity, new projects, things like that. Oh, I get it now. So like you didn't just start angel investing like from the get-go. You actually sort of warmed yourself up by being able to try investing for your family and also like different asset classes before investing in like companies through angel investing with your own capital. So it's like a slow progression. Not so slow because it was just a few years, but at least you progressed. It wasn't just like, oh, I saw a company and then I decided I would invest in it. It was a progression. Yep. Yeah. The way we look at companies is different, right? When you look at public equities, when you look at property projects to invest in, or when you look at a new traditional business to invest in compared to startups, because I think most startups, especially in 2020, did not have numbers, especially in the pre-seed stage and seed stage. But I was quite fortunate that paid a bit more attention to the unit economics. So there were some startups that I missed out on back then that I guess if I have not had those experience investing in other asset classes, I would have missed out on. So I guess that helps. 
And also, like, obviously, my background, having failed multiple businesses, I would say, help in terms of analyzing a business and knowing how hard it is to actually operate. I think in theory, everything's always easy to operate. But when you get down to business and you get down day to day, I think it's a different beast altogether. And of course, having Ed and James there, I think they're also very fundamentalist at heart. That's why Kopi Kenangan is the business that it is today. So I think that's why I felt it was a great fit to co-invest alongside those guys. I'm curious. So after you started investing like in your family, with like, with your family funds, how did you transition into like an angel investor in your own right? Was your first angel investment Kopi Kenangan or was it something else? Oh, no, no, no. My angel investment was years after Kopi Kenangan was made. Hmm. My first angel investment was actually, I think it was Gaji Kesa in 2020. Oh. End of 2020, yeah. I remember I that, think yes. it was Gaji Kesa. Yeah, I think it was Vidit. I invested in Vidit, a uh, very small check size. I, I just, I told Vidit, please let me in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, because I also learned something, right? I know no matter what business someone decides to do, I think at the end of the day, what matters the most is actually not the num- not only the numbers. I think the numbers is the downside. I think the upside is the person. Like 1,000 plus or like, I don't know how many coffee shops there are in Indonesia, but there's only one Kopi Kenangan, right? And there's a few more sizable players and that's it. And the difference, I think, are the founders, the Edward and James and so on. And that's why I wanted to invest in Fidit at that time. Just because I think there were a lot of early wage EWA players, but then I wanted to be a, a part of something Fidit is building just because I think Vidit is such a, not only a great founder, not only a great operator, I think he's a great person as well. And just from my few times chatting with him. So that was my first investment, if I'm not mistaken. Well, if you are mistaken, you will add it in the description, but it's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm pretty sure you are right. So how did you end up angel investing in Vidit? Like, were you already looking for a company to invest in? Were you already like saying like, oh, I want to be an angel investor. Let me look for a company to invest in. Or was it like you met Vidit and thought, hmm, maybe I should be an angel investor? Oh, no. At the time, I just started learning about angel investment. Because of COVID, everything sort of shut down. The other kinds of investment sort of slowed down as well. My traditional businesses sort of slowed down. That was when... I started looking at angel investing alongside James and Ed, right, oh, who were gracious okay. enough to allow me to actually join them in the journey in I terms see. of looking at companies, helping them. So actually, when uh, the video came about, it was actually for this angel group that we had. So I did not plan to be an angel investor. I just wanted to learn at that stage. Mm. I wanted to learn how is it to look at founders. I wanted to learn how is it to look at the startups want to look at the kind of metrics that startup investors look at basically after chatting with vidit after hearing how vidit pitch i think i was just like such a great guy I have to invest in this guy so you were just <laughs> thinking about like potentially becoming an angel investor you're just learning and then while you were learning you happened to talk to ed and then he invited you to join his group of like angel investors and then Maybe when you joined the group, you didn't have like a target company, but in that process, you met Gaji Jasa and did it. That's yeah. how it started. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. I just wanted to help the guys out uh, while learning, right? Because I feel there's a lot to learn. Was the angel group 
that Edward was part of already like the Capital Network or was it different? No, no. It was actually at that time, it was just a group of friends. That was mm. actually after that, I think, if I'm not mistaken again, after that, then we made the informal angel network called, and made it called Capital Network. Mm. That's when I started doing this more seriously and full-time. Basically, that's when I started to be on the ground, talk to other VCs, uh, look for deals, and deal source for the angel network, and also start investing more of my own capital. How did you decide that, oh, now I'm going to become an angel investor and like make this like my full-time thing? Because now, like you told me, like in a week, you're taking like lots of calls, you're busy all the time. But like, how did you transition to like, a full-time angel investor from your first investment? Well, at that time, everything was still in lockdown, right? So I couldn't think of any other businesses to do and I was enjoying it and I had a bit of savings. So in startup terms, I had quite a bit of a runway. So I allocated a portion of my runway for angel investing and then basically just decided to do this full-time and just learn. I did not think of eventually making a fun like I did to, like I'm doing today, but at the time, I just wanted to learn and just want to absorb everything that these guys can teach me. That was when I set my own KPI of uh, meeting, let's say, 40 people a week, 50 people a week, a uh, mixture of VCs uh, and startups. Then eventually, I sort of enjoyed more. It does not feel like a job because it's so fun meeting people and learning from different people every single day. I felt that was the first time where I felt happy being dumb. Not dumb, I guess. In the sense that because I was learning so much from people, right? Happy being a beginner, maybe. Not winning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I guess, yeah. Happy being a beginner, not winning. Happy learning, right? Yeah. Because that was the first time where it felt like I was growing every day. Not physically, but mentally, I think. As a full-time angel investor, what was the hardest thing about it? Um, I think allocating your capital. I think being realistic about how much you can allocate to angel investing. And I think when you're angel investing in early stage companies, you cannot only invest in one company, regardless of how great you think the business model is, regardless of how great you think the founder is. At the end of the day, investing is also a probability game. So there are a lot of factors that you cannot control because you are not the one running the company. If you want to be the one running the company, you might as well just be a founder. So just because you are not the one running the company, there's a lot of unforeseen factors. And because of there's a lot of unforeseen factors, you cannot do bets. I believe that you shouldn't do bad sizing. I believe that you should diversify and basically allocate, be disciplined in terms of capital allocation. Were there any tough lessons or like big mistakes you made in like the early days of angel investing? I wouldn't call them mistakes. Well, I guess looking at the wrong metrics, I guess will be my mistake. And not caring enough about entry level valuation. I think, for example, now, obviously, the tech valuation has gone down a lot. But at the same time, if you enter early enough, it's still a good investment, regardless of how much the uh, company has corrected itself. That was something that I learned. It's not about a company being able to reach a billion, two billion or $5 million. It's about entering at fair valuation so that you can exit when the market picks up. So there's the arbitrage in terms of like the multiples being more at a premium later on when the market picks up and things like that. Could you tell me like a bit more about the angel network you started with the Coffee Canadian founders? Like how did you grow it? And when you started it, did you imagine it to like grow into a lot more people? 
or was it just something like on the side that just wanted to do like oh we just want to have an angel network and invest on the side you weren't really caring so much about like how many members how many investments uh, we weren't really caring because we did not monetize of it it was just an informal group chat start out with people living in the same apartment that i used to live alongside ed ed is still living there so there was a lot of startup founders that live in the same apartment complex so we started out with just those founders in that apartment complex eventually grew to like 40 members then i think we managed to for a while I felt like it was quite cool to be sharing deals with a lot of these people because I think they were founders and executives of the leading internet companies in Indonesia, right? So I thought that there was a clear value add that I'm bringing to like new founders when I'm able to introduce these new founders to these seasoned execs and founders. I, we never thought about growing it. We just wanted to do it for, may sound cliche, but for the love of it, I guess, because we were passionate about it. And it was yeah. fun doing it among friends. And now, does the Angel Network still exist? Or did you shut it down because you started like capital ventures like the VC fund? Well, the Angel Network also is less active, but I don't think it will ever be shut down just because mm -hmm. it was never launched in that way. Mm -hmm. It's just an Angel Network where I will always be there. It was where people can always share stuff there. But of course, now that we've started the fund, that is the main fo focus and that's the main priority for us. How did you decide to start a fund? You could have also just been an angel network forever. So how did you decide like, oh, maybe we should start a fund? And the second question is like, when do we start a fund? So how did you decide to start one in the first place and when to start it? I guess we were lucky when we were angel investing. We were lucky to have uh, back multiple great founders like we did, right? Mm -hmm. I think these founders allowed us to give us a good track record. And it gave us an opportunity to actually raise a fund because after investing in these founders, we were able to make a bit of name for ourselves and actually have a good amount of deal flows coming our ways. Uh, people wanting to talk to us and wanting us on their cap table. But then obviously being an angel, you cannot have as much impact on the startup as you would like because you obviously have lesser stake, lesser rights and things like that. And I think... This is part of human greed, just wanting more, wanting more opportunity there, momentum. The timing was right. So James and I decided to go and make the fun. I mean, I don't know if you know, but uh, our investor base are mostly like the bigger venture capitals from the region. I'll yeah. consider them the top tier venture capitals in the region. That was that makes up most of our LP base. So I feel like the early funds have gotten more mature. They have gotten bigger. So I felt there was a space in the market for, for a micro fund like us, where we can invest very early on and sort of be these guys' friends in the early stage and later on introduce these guys to the other VCs. That was the thought process. So you're sort of like a bridge between like Angel and like the bigger VCs in a sense, right? Because you come in earlier, but still not super duper early, like an Angel. Yes. We actually come in as early as the angel. Oh, okay. So would you be like the first check also? Yep, yep. We oh, hope okay. to be the first check. Our goal in the next five to 10 years, I hope is like to be the first check in one of the next few unicorns in Southeast Asia. So that was like our idealistic goal. I'm curious, like after knowing Edward for so long and from the get-go when you met him and found out about his restaurant, you wanted to learn from him. What's the biggest thing you learned from him? all these years, especially after seeing his own journey, which I'm sure he does share with you. I guess just hunger and adaptability, right? 
So prior to the restaurant, he was involved in other kinds of businesses. I guess I always told Edward that, hey, if he wasn't raising for a coffee shop, he wouldn't be considered like a tier one founder just because of his background. He just does multiple businesses, but nothing, no consultant background, no business school degree, but just a pure entrepreneur. So what I learned is just adaptability and hunger. I think that he just want to succeed. Um, he just uh, believe in himself. But also at the same time, after achieving something, I think what I learned as well is that he never forget where he comes from in the sense that he's still as humble as he was back then. I think I can still talk to him today like how I talked to him back then. So that was something that I learned. Like I dunked on you. <laughs> no, no, no. Like the same, same kind of conversation you mean like it's still as easy yes. as it was before to approach him as it used to be. Yes, yes. And the same thing goes for his co-founder, right? James, who I started to fund with. I think James also teach me a lot about being humble, just focusing on what matters and not being too big-headed. I think things like that are very, very important. Those are characteristics that you have to maintain, right? To ensure that your success or whatever you have achieved continue being that way because i think in order for you to have a long-term success one of the biggest thing is to just be likable as well so that people want to work with you because i don't think you can ever do or achieve anything great by yourself i think that's something that edward and james have proven that they're able to do and i think stepping back again to the fund when you decided to launch the fund did you feel like you were ready to manage a fund um, I don't know if I will ever be ready to manage a fund, but I know that I will do anything it takes to return my investors' money. And I know that uh, this is something that I want to dedicate the next decade of my life to, at least. So I felt like I was as ready as I could be. And I felt like talking to founders and being in the industry doesn't feel like working for me. Mm -hmm. It feels like I'm still constantly learning. So I felt it was something that I hope I won't disappoint my investors. When you first like floated the idea of having a fund, what was the period of time between like floating the idea of the fund, like say January 2000 versus the fund launch? Like how long did that take? Like what was that time gap? The first time you maybe mentioned like, oh, maybe we should start a fund versus when the fund actually launched. I think there was one and a half years. There was a bit of a, oh, should we do it? Should we not? Should we do it? Should we not? I think we should. So how did you decide like, Okay, should we do it? Should we not? And then like the final decision, like, yeah, let's do it. And then let's start setting it up. Personally, I don't know for James, but for me, I don't think I want to stop angel investing. I don't think I want to get out of the industry. I think I want to stay in the industry for a long, long time. I think I want to make a bigger impact. And I think the next step towards making a bigger impact is having an angel fund or a micro fund. And at the time, I felt that I have the right setup. I felt like those guys are like my big brothers. I felt like having the right advisor in Edward, having the right partners in James and Christian, I felt like the setup couldn't be better for me. So why not go for it? When were you like sure that you wanted to start the fund? Because you did say earlier, like, oh, should we do it? Should we not? Was it after a few weeks, a few months? I think I was always sure of it, but I wasn't sure in my ability. But I think I was always sure that I wanted to have a fund. I'm not sure if I want to have a big fund because I might not have the skill set yet to do it. 
but I always felt that it's more fun investing pre-seed stage. That's what we've been doing for the past few years. So I always felt I wanted to do it in a more deliberate way. Would you say there was a moment that was like the most meaningful for you in your angel investing career? Either your most meaningful investment or if not your most meaningful investment, just like a moment where maybe you saw like something happen or something with your portfolio company happen and you felt like it was really meaningful. Like this is why I angel invest. I guess not only angel invest, I guess just investing early in general when you become the first believers of these companies. And I guess in hard times, you'll be the first call. I think most of the times. And I think just making new friends, making these people realize that uh, regardless of what happened, more so than anything, we invest in you and you guys were sort of ideating or things like that. So like there's the friendship, there's the trust, there's that bond that is quite unbreakable. There wasn't a particular moment. There was a few moments that made me realize that being the first investor it's not just being an investor. It's just it's being a friend, being a brother, being a yeah, supporter. So stepping outside of the work, now that like you're an angel investor, full-time running your own fund, and it takes up a lot of your time. Like what do you do outside of work? Like when you're not uh, doing your usual job, are you playing sports? Are you doing something else? you have any other hobbies? I don't have much hobbies, to be honest. Ever since I joined the industry, I've gained 25 kilos. Oh my. So, <laughs> yeah. So I've gained quite a bit of weight. I have not exercised in a long time. I've just been very uh, deep into this. Very focused on my, your work. Yeah, because I wouldn't consider it work. I just love talking about it. Apart from that, there's like one question that I do have to ask you that's unrelated to work. And that's a question we okay. ask like everyone on the podcast, just to close. And that is outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? So you're not allowed to talk about angel investing for this one, but it can be anything okay. that you achieve at any time in your life. You could achieve it when you're 80, 90, 100, 70, or next year. I guess it's just looking back and then like, I think just now I mentioned, for example, like when I ran, I felt for the first time that it was something that I was actually good at, right? Mm -hmm. I think that kind of feeling is something that I hope to achieve at the end of my 10, 20 years down the road when I sort of look back at my life. Basically, the feeling of satisfaction that I've tried everything in my power to just maximize everything I do in life. So that's not just for like the like the fun performance after 10 years. It's just like your life as a whole. Yeah, life as a whole. Me being, for example, me being a filial kids to my parents, me being a, finally a nice brother to my brother. Finally, only now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have always been nice, (laughs) especially, yeah. And like, for example, being good friends, being helpful to people. That's the kind of feeling that I'm looking for to achieve. So after 10 to 20 years, we will check back in on you. I'll invite you for another podcast and ask you, how do you feel after all this time? (laughs) Yes, yes. Please do. Hopefully by then the podcast is in person. It's more fun that way. Yep. 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 Hope to see you in person. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Randy. I was so glad to have you on the podcast. I really enjoyed the whole podcast because even at the beginning, I was already enjoying too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Very nice chatting with you too. 